we're going to celebrate our sixth anniversary uh, in November. And over our brief history as a church, we've had a pattern that's continued throughout, and that is um, every summer there's a, con con uh, a significant lull in the action. People go on, uh, or in attendance, people go on vacation, and, and you know, two or three families go in a church our size. That's a noticeable difference. And yet this summer, uh, that didn't happen. You know, there were just as many people here in July, uh, June and July and August as there were in March, April, and May, uh, which was, uh, to my way of thinking, a, a harbinger of things to come. Um, and we got ready for that almost just in time. It seemed like the very first week that wall was down, you know, we had more than 80 people here at the second service. And, uh, and there was like, oh, chairs. Um, and so we, 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 the next week we had some overflow chairs. And, and September has been sort of the, um, the fulfillment of that, the, the sign that, that we were going to have more people when school started back. And that's happening. And you're here, and, and God bless you. You bring, you, you, it's more fun uh, when there are more of you. Uh, and teased me about this. She said, you notice how your jokes are funnier at the second service than they are at the first? And, and uh, the truth is, they're just as funny at the first service. They just don't, there just aren't as many people to laugh. And so, it, and I know from the worship team's perspective, it's, it's more fun to lead worship when there's a congregation, uh, you know, engaged in worship. And, and yet, th this, this brings me to a place of wanting to pause and reflect and, and take a look at who we are. And as we grow and as we prepare for, as we hope to equip the church for this stage of growth and prepare for whatever God's got for us next, I, I never want us to be a church that's broader than we are deep. Um, I think it's appropriate at this season of our church's history to make sure our roots go down deep and to make sure that we have a solid foundation. You know, any, any builder knows that... Uh, this, the, the health of a building, uh, uh, an institution, depends upon its foundation. And so that's what this series is about. You know, we're, we're sending our roots down deep, I hope. We are asking the Lord to, to, to continue to, ex to build on the foundation here so that we can be ready. This is, we, I've used this line over and over again. Um, I, I want to learn and grow from the things we do here. But there's a sense in which what we do here on Sunday morning isn't about me or you. It's about the people who aren't here yet, the people who we haven't met, the people who don't know the Lord that you come in contact with every, uh, every week in your, in your regular, regular lives or your, your outside of church lives. This is where we equip and celebrate and, and, and strengthen our walk. We also, I hope, and that's what we're studying you know, this, this season, um, do that in our private lives. And then what happens when we contact the world? Uh, I think if we plant our roots down deep, that's when we have a chance to really make a difference in our community. And we want to be a community church. We want to be a people that we don't want to be a group that gathers together and pats ourselves on the back for how righteous we are. And aren't you glad we're not like the others? Those sinners, they sure are bad, aren't they? Well, that's not us. It's thank you, God, for what you've done. Now, how can, how can I be a blessing to the people you put in my path? And so uh, I... If this is your first week in a while, we've been reading this book, or I've been reading this book and telling you about it on Sunday. Uh, it's called uh, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Uh, the subtitle is The Path to Spiritual Growth. And the title sounds a little bit harsh, 
But I, that's why I've titled the series Spiritual Fitness. And we're, we're, we're kind of circuit training. We're going through the gym, learning one machine at a time. And this is week three out of 12. Um, the first four disciplines are the inward disciplines. Two weeks ago, we talked about meditation. Last week, we talked about prayer. This week, we're going to talk about fasting and next week's study. And then in October, we'll do the outward disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And then in November, the corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. So that's, that's the outline, you know, almost to, well, through Thanksgiving. Each week, we're trying to make it a little bit of a workshop and practice through the week what we learned. After the first week, we did a we had a little meditation assignment last week. Just sort of, I won't ask for a show of hands, but you can just sort of nod. Uh, this one, I think, was probably the easiest assignment of all, because if you didn't know anything about classical spiritual disciplines, you probably knew you were expected to pray. You know, read the Bible some and pray some, and that's, you know, that's what, what we're known for. This, this week's is going to be a little more, um, take us into a little new area for some of us, I believe. But... Uh, did you pray last week? Did you pray for your needs? Did you pray for your children? Did you pray for your marriage? You can nod for this. Uh, you can, did you pray for your church? I asked last week if you prayed for me. Uh, I love that quote. The guy said, uh, this one preacher I quoted said, I'm so sensitive I can tell if you're praying for me. And it seems to me like there's a real opportunity for me to manipulate you with that. And I really am not that sensitive. But, uh, but I still would like it if you pray for me. So, so please do. And so I hope, I hope you prayed for me this week. I think your church will, will benefit if you pray for the congregation. Pray for people who are struggling to get here uh, for whatever reason. Uh, I can, when, when Gene and I were younger, I can remember vividly our most bitter fights were Sunday mornings uh, for whatever reason, um, getting ready. Some of it was because I didn't want to go uh, when, we were, when we were rather young. And I'd you know, go just to keep her off my back for, a, for to keep peace in the family. But uh, I had a bad attitude and a passive-aggressive way I'd pick a fight with her on Sunday mornings and then yeah, spoil the whole thing. So uh, um, now we take two different cars to church, so it's, uh, uh, we, uh, we've kind of solved that one in, by doing an in-run. But uh, um, pray, for, pray for the congregation. Pray against temptation. Pray against evil. Uh, you know, the Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee. So did you do that this week? I hope you did. Uh, today we're going to talk about, we're going to tackle a new discipline. And at the end, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll have another sort of practical assignment so we can give it a try. This week is about fasting. Uh, and fasting, of course, just means abstaining from food. You know, the, we, we get the name of a meal from this practice. The, uh, early in the morning, we break our fast. Uh, and that's why we call it breakfast. And for many of us in 21st century United States, the only fasting we ever do is when we're unconscious. You know, if we're awake, if we're awake, there's food going in, and that's, you know, that's the world we live in, right? Uh, so this is a real opportunity for us to swim upstream. Fasting is very commonly mentioned in Scripture, and it's very common throughout church history, but not so big on modern church history. The church I grew up in majored on gluttony rather than fasting, which was kind of ironic because it seemed like, like, like we had at that church some pet sins that weren't really biblical and kind of ignored some sins that the Bible clearly labels as, as sinful. Um, in fact, when Foster was doing his research for this book, he, was able, he couldn't find any books about fasting written between 1861 and 1954, almost 100 years. Lots of people writing books about discipleship, but not one on, on the discipline of fasting. Now, it sort of made a comeback in the late 20th century and it's a very, 
it's very commonly mentioned in scripture and throughout history except for you know, recent modern history. John Wesley said there are two extremes. He said some have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason and others have utterly disregarded it. Well, we don't want to do either one. We don't want to, it, it's not like the gateway to all other spiritual gifts or you got to be doing this or you're in trouble. And on the other hand, it's not something we should ignore. Jesus did it. It's something we ought to take a look at. I can think of a couple reasons fasting is out of fashion. First of all, it has some sort of negative connotations from history. Um, I bet there are people here in the room who've seen a movie called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And maybe you recall seeing monks kind of walk down and doing this chanting thing and banging themselves in the forehead with big boards. Can you picture that scene? Um, that actually comes from a real thing in history. I've talked with my students about that, a group of people called the Flagellants during the 14th century, and I'll, I'll tell that story in a second. But a more recent example, if you've read the book The Da Vinci Code or seen the movie, there's this creepy monk slash assassin named Silas who will go out and kill somebody, and then he goes back to his room and prays, thanks God for victory over whatever, and then he gets out the whip and starts scourging himself. And, and where does this come from? Paul actually makes a mention of something like that. We'll look at that in a minute. But in the 14th century, the, what, what was called commonly the Black Death, uh, we know now as bubonic plague, spread throughout Europe, and, and estimates are hard to make, but about a third of Europe died as a result of this disease, and it was a kind of a hit-or-miss thing. So there were some villages that were kind of totally spared, and there were others that were almost totally wiped out. So I mean, just think about how scary it is when the plague comes to your town if you're living in the 14th century. And there was a group of people uh, called the Flagellants who came to believe that they could atone for the sins of all Christendom and sort of lead Europe in repentance by whipping themselves. Uh, kind of like a, an ultra example of doing penance. Like, we're all bad, and because all y'all are bad, and me too, I'm going to whip myself. And they'd have these emotional, frenzied repentance festivals where they'd gather around and talk about, you know, there'd, there'd be a lot of uh, wailing and moaning and scourging and stuff. Uh, the irony, it's almost comically absurd, is that, you know, having open sores on your body makes it more likely that you'll get the plague, not less likely. And so they died in actually bigger numbers than, than others. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened there spiritually, uh, but that's, those kind of excesses are sometimes associated with, with fasting. Like, food's good, we like food, we start denying ourselves food, does that mean we ought to torment ourselves in other ways just to see how much we can take? Is that the kind of God we serve who just likes to run us through hoops and, and see how hard life can be for us? And then if we're going down that path, are we now into the path of mortification of the flesh and the, the going the way of the flagellants? And I think no. I think there's nothing about fasting that would necessarily take us down that path, but I think people sometimes make the association. Also, you know, we live in a world that's a lot about food. You, know, you can't watch a football game without seeing a big steamy cheese pizza coming out of the oven just beckoning you to make the call. Uh, and, and we also are, are all kind of, a, I think, victims of modern advertising or even a bureaucratic propaganda. We played a little game in the first service. We'll try it again. I'll give you the slogan. You tell me the food product I'm talking about. Uh, what does a body good? Uh, what's the other white meat? What's for dinner? Um, and my point is it works. Um, they, the food lobbies have 
have these, their little slogans where they convince you that you need more food, not less. And we've bought it, haven't we? Uh, most of you I know are familiar with the Food Guide Pyramid, which is actually somewhat, um, to my way of thinking, uh, not a bad idea and a huge improvement over what came before. Do you know the government didn't start telling us what to eat with the pyramid? Can anybody remember what was before that? There were the four basic food groups. Um, and without any mention as to proportion, the government said, or FDA or whoever it was that was given this advice, just make sure you get all four of these every day. Milk or dairy, meat, um, grain, and fruit and vegetable. And you know, what's the result? If we make sure every day we get some, some dairy and some meat and some grain and some fruit and vegetable, uh, we're going to have a pretty fat country. And, and, and that's, that's what we've had. Uh, we've bought into some of the advertising and some of the sort of food grower lobby propaganda um, and, and yet feeding our flesh hasn't really helped us to grow spiritually. I can think of a third reason that's a little more subtle. We live in a culture that's elevated satisfying ourselves almost to the point of being a positive virtue. And you can actually hear this argument that like, the fact that I want something is evidence that I should have it. Um, and that's, you can, you can hear that, that, that people making that point in, in other contexts to the point that not having my way becomes this unbearable thing. And yet Paul describes that, no, feeding the spirit rather than feeding the flesh is the way to, to pursue godliness. Now, there are a couple of myths, I think, associated with fasting. Will it hurt you? Will it do ir irreparable tissue damage? Absolutely not. Uh, it won't. Um, now, if you're on a special diet, be careful. But, uh, and I'm not encouraging you to go out and jump into a 40-day fast and see how that works. I'd, take, I'd encourage baby steps. But um, you, can, you can only go a few minutes without air. You can only go a couple days without water. But you can go a month or more without food. I'm not suggesting that today. But, but you can. It's, it's the lack of water or air that will take you down fast. Lack of food, you'll be okay. I'll give a, a, an example of this. Uh, uh, Muslims fast. Now, this is just a, a sun-up fast, not a 24-hour fast. But Muslims fast this month, the month of Ramadan, for them. And I read an article a few years ago uh, in the sports page comparing uh, there are several Muslim players in the NBA. And I wonder how their stats do during the month of Ramadan where they're not eating anything during the day. And the answer was it came down a little bit. But uh, my point is they were still able to keep their jobs, still able to play you know, in, in the NBA regularly, which is kind of a demanding physical job. And, uh, and so taking a, a month of fasting during the day didn't, didn't significantly weaken their ability to perform even at that high physical level. And my job's not nearly as demanding physically, so I can, I can manage to get it done without food. Or without, definitely without as much as I've been getting. Fasting's all over the Bible. Um, this is like a hall of fame of fa fasters in Scripture. Moses and David and Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Anna, Paul, and of course Jesus. What would Jesus do? He would fast. In church history, these guys are from all over the place as far as church uh, uh, denominational backgrounds. Of course, Martin Luther was the founder of the Lutheran Church. Uh, several denominations grew out of John Calvin's teachings. Uh, the Dutch Reformed and the Puritans were all Calvinists, the Huguenots in France, and 
the Presbyterians in Scotland. John Knox is the guy who founded the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. John Wesley founded the Methodist Church in England. Jonathan Edwards started the Great Awakening here in the American colonies, and David Brainerd was a colonial missionary to the Indians. So my point is all over the place. These guys attributed some of their success spiritually to their fasting, their, their discipline, their habit of fasting. And then there's a phrase in theology class called prevenient grace, which refers to the fact that God shows people good stuff even if they don't acknowledge him. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so you can find a long list of people throughout history who are known for wisdom but may not be Christians who have discovered that fasting is a helpful thing. Uh, the Persian philosopher Zoroaster, Confucius, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Hippocrates, the father of medicine. All of these guys believe that fasting was a helpful thing. Here's what fasting is not. It's not a hunger strike. That's a political maneuver to try to attract attention or raise awareness. It's not a diet. Many people believe that fasting has physical benefits, and I think that's probably true, but that's not the goal. The goal is the spiritual benefit, and whatever else happens is secondary. You can find uh, a few types of fast in the Bible. There's what I would call the normal fast, which is giving up all food but not water, the kind Jesus went on when he was in the desert just before he was tempted by Satan, because it says at the end of that 40-day fast, he was hungry. didn't say anything about him being thirsty, so I think he must have had water then. And when Satan tempted him, he didn't offer him, hey, you want a drink? He said, how about some food? And that was what the temptation. So I think that's the kind of fast Jesus was on right after his baptism. A partial fast would be something closer to what you do at Lent, if you practice that, where you give up something for 40 days or a period of time. In Daniel, uh, he gave up... Uh, delicacies, meat, and wine for a period of three weeks. That's the only biblical reference I can find anything close to Lent. I don't, you know, where we give up, you know, pick one thing and give it up for 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And I think, you know, you, you give anything up as an offering to the Lord, I believe you'll receive that. But I don't find any biblical command to do that kind of stuff. Now, an absolute fast would be giving up food and water totally, all food, all water, it, and that necessarily has to be short because it's dangerous to give up water for long term. And that's in a period of emergency. Uh, you see that in the book of Esther. You see it also in the book of Acts. And I, I use this, this kind of silly word picture in, uh, when we studied Esther over the summer. That is kind of like the bat signal, I think. Uh, you know, when Commissioner Gordon thought Gotham City was in danger, you put the signal up in the sky and Batman would know to come. If, if somebody's on the march, they're coming to get you, Hammond's trying to wipe out our whole, our, our whole nation, what are we going to do? Let's proclaim a fast and let's all go without food and water for a few days and uh, ask God to deliver us. It's like an emergency plea to, for deliverance from heaven. And then there are a couple of fasts recorded in the Bible that I would call supernatural and absolute, where it looks like they gave up food and water for 40 days. And you can't do that without supernatural intervention. Don't try this at home. If you felt like God was calling you to go on a 40-day fast from food and water, I'd try to talk you out of that. Um, Elijah got away with it, but uh, Elijah got a, did a lot of things I can't do. And so um, the giving up water is risky, uh, and giving up food, not so much. Fasting is normally a private thing, Jesus taught, but there are several group fasts described in the Bible. In Leviticus, uh, God gave instructions for the Day of Atonement, which included a regular yearly fast. In times of national emergency, in the book of Joel, you see it, the Old Testament reading this morning that, that Josh read us was, you know, the enemy's on the march, they're coming here, let's proclaim a fast and ask God to deliver us. 
uh, public repentance. When Jonah went to Nineveh to, to preach repentance, from the king on down, the entire city went into mourning. They put on sackcloth and ashes, and they fasted as a sign of repentance. And then it's a way to invoke God's blessing. In Ezra, he was leading people from Persia back to Jerusalem and, and thought there would be danger on the way. And so he asked God to bless him. Let's read that story. This is Ezra 8, verses 21 to 23. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. So Ezra saying, I told the king God would protect us, and I don't want to ask the king for protection. I, I just want to ask God to protect us. But it does look scary out there, so let's fast and ask God to protect us. So anytime we're going to launch something new, anytime you're going to go on a new journey or a new season of your life, it seems appropriate to, to fast and ask for God's blessing on that. Uh, there was regular fasting described in, in the Old Testament. Uh, according to Zechariah, it looks like there were four different regular public fasts per year. Um, we, we studied this parable from Luke 18 back in the spring when we did the parable series. Remember the Pharisee who was praying at the altar and he said, he looked at the tax collector and he said, God, I thank you I'm not like this guy. He's such a sinner and I'm good instead and I give to the poor and I fast twice a week. And so twice a week fasting was a regular practice of the Pharisees. I learned about a new manuscript today or this week. I hadn't read about this before. I think it's pronounced the Didache and it's a first century possibly manual for early disciples. In fact, some believe it's, uh, I had to read about it because Foster referred to it and I didn't know what he was talking about. But some believe it's the oldest manual for disciples outside the Bible. It's not part of the New Testament canon, but it was sort of an instruction manual for early disciples. And it suggested, not suggested, it, it commanded twice a week fasting, Wednesday and Friday. Um, the Second Council of Orléans in the 5th century, now this is a Catholic thing by now, uh, makes fasting obligatory. And John Wesley so strongly believed in it that he encouraged Methodists to fast twice a week, again, Wednesday and Friday. In fact, he wouldn't ordain a guy as a Methodist minister unless he was committed to the idea of fasting twice a week. Paul, let's go back to the Bible. Paul fasted often. In 2 Corinthians 11:27, he said, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. So Paul's describing that all of my flesh likes all these things, like clothing and, uh, and warmth. Uh, I've done without them and I've learned to do without them. Now that sounds like bondage. That doesn't sound like a, a place that many of us are eager to go to. I, you know, I like food. I like clothing. I like being... Uh, comfortable with the temperature. But Paul calls it freedom. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Now, I have a warning here. Let's beware of taking these spiritual disciplines and turning them into regulations. That, I think, is the way to death. That's the way to be in Pharisees instead of disciples. Uh, this is true of many of the disciplines we'll study, where I think they're highly recommended. I think Jesus practiced them, and, and uh, the Christian church has practiced them for centuries. But, well, let me make a contrast. Last week, we studied prayer. Well, everybody knows you've got to pray. Uh, every Christian who goes to any Christian church is going to be aware that Bible studying and prayer are part of it. Fasting, not so much. Uh, simplicity and solitude, which we'll get to next, next month. Uh, those aren't 
we don't celebrate those as much, and yet Jesus practiced them, and, and, and the Christian church for centuries has practiced them. Yet, beware of judging one another for not being as simple, or not being as, as solitary, or, or not fasting as much. You know, we don't want to do that. In fact, uh, this scripture I'm going to read from Colossians, I think it would apply across the board to all the rest of the ones we're going to study. Uh, this is from Colossians 2, starting with verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now here's a question. Did Jesus command us to fast? And theologians have, have debated that issue and come down on both sides of it. A guy named Thomas Cartwright wrote a book in 1580 called The Holy Exercise of a True Fast, and his book is probably the most articulate defense of the position that, yes, Jesus did command us to fast. Foster's not so sure, and I, I tend to agree with Foster that Jesus set an example of fasting. There seems to be a clear expectation that his disciples will fast, but he stopped just short, I think, of saying, you must fast. And let's take a look at the scriptures. Matthew 6:16. in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you fast, do it this way. And we'll take more look at the instruction in just a minute. But that when you fast sort of assumes that we're going to be fasting. It doesn't say if you fast, but it also doesn't say you must fast. Jesus didn't have any problem making clear commands when, when he felt like the situation called for it. And, and he lived in a society where in the first century, fasting was very common. So he was addressing a practice that people already did, not introducing something new. But you know, I know I'm going back and forth here. He mentioned this fasting in the context of giving and prayer. And there seems to be this presupposition that it's just what disciples do. Uh, so it was definitely what, follow, what, what people of faith did in the first century. Uh, we would believe you know, the church today eagerly embraces giving and prayer, not so eagerly embraces fasting. And yet I think there was that expectation. <clears throat> the second is in Matthew 9, and this, I think, is a more, more explicit direction for us to fast. Um, this, this comes from a debate between, or a question from John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, starting with verse 14, John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Well, who's the bridegroom? That's Jesus. And, and what he's saying is, I'm here with you now. It's party time. But when I go, that's the time for fasting. And so there's this, again, not quite a command, but this clear expectation that disciples will fast after he leaves them until he comes back. And so where are we? We're in that time, aren't we? You know, we're, we're the disciples after his ascension and before he's come back. In fact, I would, I would encourage you to see this not so much as a regulation, but as an invitation. Do you want to be closer to God? Jesus, I think, is offering us this opportunity. Fasting is a way to do it. The first reference to the disciples of Jesus fasting comes after the ascension, and it's in Acts chapter 13. Let's take a look. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Notice how the disciples use fasting. They're asking for direction and also for consecration. They, 
they're, they're fasting, and the Lord reveals to them to set apart these two guys, and then they fast some more and then send them off to do the work. So what's the purpose of fasting? Um, in the first instruction Jesus gave on fasting, he identified wrong motives that, that could lead us to fast. I mean, they're kind of obvious. Why would we fast for the wrong motives? To impress others with how spiritual we are. You know, look at me, I fast. You know, God likes me better now because of what I do for him. And, you know, why don't you fast more? I guess you're not that spiritual, right? So we could, we could be trying to impress others with how spiritual we are or trying to manipulate God. You know, you've heard the stories of people who were blessed, you know, we fasted and prayed and that God opened the gates of heaven and we were blessed beyond. And, and you might be thinking, well, I want some of that too, so I'm going to fast, see if I can get God to give me the goodies. Well, God sees our hearts. God sees our motives. Jesus taught about this in Matthew 6. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So there's a nice promise. We fast and pray, and we ask for God's blessing, and we do that secretly. It says God will respect that. God will honor and bless us. But God does see our hearts, and he knows our motives. And in Zechariah, there's a passage where God kind of hits right to the heart. Uh, Zechariah 7, 4. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people in the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Obviously, God wouldn't ask that question if he, if he didn't think the answer was maybe not. So what are the purposes? Well, John Wesley says, First, let it be done unto the Lord with our eyes singly fixed on him. Let our intention herein be this and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. I like that quote. Let's apply that to all the disciplines that we learn. So the purpose of fasting, first of all, is to focus on God. Secondly, to, to, I think it helps us to identify the things that threaten to control us. And one of the things in our society is food. You know, many of us just you know, we finish one meal and we eagerly anticipate the next meal because uh, that's just what we do. We're conditioned for that. Fasting, I think, could help restore our priorities and bring our life into balance. I mean, food is good. It's a blessing from God. It's something that God gives us. And yet, is it a consuming passion of our life? It, it doesn't have to be that. There's this curious exchange between Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 4. His disciples urged him, this was after his fast, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? They still didn't get it. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So what Jesus is pointing to is I'm sustained by something besides the regular food that, that everybody else counts on. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul said this, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And this, I think, is the key to what the, the benefit that can result from fasting. It's a way to avoid being mastered by our appetites. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes a reference to the Olympics. The Greeks had been doing the Olympics for several hundred years before Paul wrote this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Well, again, he's talking about the Olympics, and the crown they got was literally a, a laurel wreath that, that definitely did rot. It, it was organic. It just... It would dry up like a flower. 
but we're, we're aiming for another prize. And here's what Paul says about it. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Let's talk about that a little bit. This disqualification, I don't think he's talking about salvation. I'm talk, I think he's talking about effectiveness in fulfilling his call to spread the gospel. But what's this beat my body part? That sounds a little bit like, like we're back to the, the mortification. Uh, notice Paul speaking metaphorically here. He's using the Olympics as an example to talk about how we can practice spiritual disciplines. And I think what he's really saying is that he wants the Holy Spirit to master his flesh rather than the other way around. And that's what we want, right? Do we want people who are mastered by our flesh? Oh, whatever I want, it's got to be satisfied or the beast comes out. Or do we want the Holy Spirit to drive us and, and let the Spirit be, be the guiding force of our lives? And so I encourage you to practice this week. And I, I would encourage a baby step. Uh, how can we practice? There are a couple different ways. I would encourage trying at most this week a 24-hour fast. You know, try something. You know, many of you have maybe practiced this over the time, but I, if, you, if you haven't done this before, I would encourage you to try at most a 24-hour. And if that seems too much, just skip a meal and, and spend some time praying during that time. A normal fast would be nothing but water. A partial liquid fast would be nothing solid. And uh, I don't really see that much in the Bible, but I've, I've known a lot of people who've done it that way, and I've done it that way a good bit before, where orange juice, coffee, okay, uh, but, uh, uh, but nothing, uh, um, nothing, no solid food. In fact, uh, Jamie Buckingham tells really funny stories about this. I don't know if you've read this before, but he went on a, I read once, oh, I, I didn't realize I would have one of his grandkids here when I was telling this story, um, when, I, when I wrote this down, but he, he wrote a real funny line once about how he was doing a liquid fast and he would take a spoonful of ice cream out of the freezer and wait for it to melt <laughs> so that it would be okay to take. I think that's kind of funny. I, I've got an example from my own life that's just as absurd. When I, uh, I, This was about 10 years ago. I decided I was going to go on a liquid fast. And instead of being closer to God and more spiritual, what I had was like a gourmet extravaganza of liquid foods. I had you know, cappuccino, and then I, I had some kind of soup, and, the, and I had a smoothie, and it was like, how many different ways can I bless myself and indulge myself without breaking the solid food rule? And I think I missed the mark there. I don't think I, don't think I really got any closer to God with that fast. Uh, it was a, it, it, maybe I was trying. And so the, the other thing I want to point out about this is a 24-hour fast might not be as hard as you think. That's only two meals, because if you eat dinner tonight, and just get breakfast and lunch, then eat dinner tomorrow, that's about 24 hours, and depending, it might be 23 or whatever. But that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's the one I did this week. I felt like I needed, I used to fast a good bit uh, or more often. It's been, obviously, it's been a while since I've uh, uh, missed a lot of meals, and I'm not a big fan of missing meals, frankly, and so I, I, uh, I, I felt a little awkward doing this message on fasting. Um, but I didn't want to be a Pharisee and encourage you to try something I hadn't tried. So I thought, well, I need to do one this week. And so I, I did a, the, the skipping breakfast and lunch one uh, this week. And during lunch, I worked on my message on fasting, which seemed totally appropriate to me. And so as we practice it, though, I think, oh, and I'll just tell, my, tell you my own story for this week. I felt like God helped me with that. But also I felt like kind of unexpected 
God blessed me in another totally unexpected way, and, and some of that could still be playing out um, the very next day. And I don't know if it had any relation to the fast or if it just happened to be there. And, and again, that's not the goal. It's not the blessing we're going after. It's the closeness with God that we're going after. But the Bible makes it plain repeatedly. We pursue God, and, and he makes us glad, not sad, about that because we serve a God who loves his children and wants to bless us. Um, why do we fast? We fast for guidance. We fast for deliverance. We fast for intimacy with God. And, you know, in our society, it's hard to match what they went through 2,000 years ago because our mastery of the food supply is so complete that we, most of us don't ever, don't, have never experienced real hunger. I know I haven't. I mean, I've, what passes for hunger with me, unless it's self-imposed through a fast, you know, what passes for hunger in my life is an appetite. You know, I see a commercial or I start thinking about something and, and my appetites take over. But real hunger, like, like you know, people who don't have enough food experience, you know, that's foreign to me. I just don't know what that feels like. And so one of the side benefits that the Bible doesn't really mention that I can imagine coming from fasting is an empathy for people who know hunger, an empathy for, the Bible does say we should feed those that are hungry, and it seems to me like if I go through a little fasting, I might care more about them, you know, because I know what that feels like a little bit better. Now, that's just, it's not really a biblical principle, it just seems kind of logical to me that that would happen. So, I believe this to be true, and I encourage you to check it out and see, but I believe that with practice, we take some baby steps, maybe try Try one this week. If it works, try it again. If, if you like that, try, try a longer period. Um, I, I've been encouraged by this to try to make a, a liquid 24-hour fast one of, part of my weekly routine, at least for the next season. Maybe I'll try it through the, through the spiritual discipline series and see, what, see where that takes me. But um, I believe that with practice, our focus will change from how much food we're missing. Because that's... That's really the problem, right? What's the big problem with fasting? I'm just so hungry. <laughs> and so when I fast, my first reaction in my flesh is just to think, oh, about where I wasn't, where I wasn't even hungry before, the lack of it or the decision to do without it will just possess me and I'll obsess over that. Well, I think as we practice, we'll grow out of that. And, and our focus will change from the food we're missing to the intimacy, the opportunity we have for intimacy with God. And that's my encouragement to you. Let's check that out and see if that works. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to do this in a way that honors you. Uh, Lord, we don't want to turn into the Pharisee church that's so proud of how spiritual we are. Uh, but Lord, we do want to be close to you. And Lord, we do want to uh, uh, have a deeper relationship with you. And Lord, we want... Lord, as a, as a church, we confess that we want what you want more than we want to get our way. And Lord, I ask that if we don't exactly feel that, that you would change our hearts and help us to pursue you in order to be close to you, not just for the blessings that you give us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.